July, Ambrose Beers. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers that make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with greenish, scaly fabric, soft, plush uppers, foam footbeds, and non-slip grips on the soles. And three white claws on each foot. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's 8. Footbed measures 10.5 inches. Check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes. Or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. Also join us later this month when we talk to writer Rami Ungar about his next novel, Rose, which should be out on Amazon right now. You can check check the show notes to find out where you can get a copy or check out the reviews for that. I really like it. It's, oh man, it's hard to describe, but uh, it would make a really good manga. It would make a really good manga. It's um, biological body horror. Uh, there's there's spellcasting elements in it. There's there's elemental spirits. It's it's pretty cool stuff. And you can find out more about him by going to Rami Ungar, the writer. And that is R-A-M-I-U-N-G-A-R, the writer.com. Special thanks to all of my guests this month. If you want to be a guest on PGTTCM or Black Clock due to your hobbies or professions in academia, arts, literature, relating to weird fiction, gothic horror, uh, old English, any of that fun stuff, folklore, Cthulhu mythos, weird fiction, horror in general, contact us and we'll see what we can do. P-G-T-T-C-M dot com slash contact to get a hold of us. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos. Look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and Clock audio on instagram and facebook we've got pgttcm on twitter and black clock audio tales on youtube check out people's guide to the cthulhu mythos on the last tuesday of each month check out our new website at pgttcm.com edited by daniel spitzer music by kevin mcleod produced at badgers drift studio in beautiful north portland A Jug of Syrup by Ambrose Beers. This narrative begins with the death of its hero. Silas Deemer died on the 16th day of July, 1863, and two days later his remains were buried. As he'd been personally known to every man, woman, and well-grown child in the village, the funeral, as the local newspaper phrased it, was largely attended. In accordance with a custom of the time and place, the coffin was opened at the graveside and the entire assembly of friends and neighbors filed past, taking a last look at the face of the dead. And then, before the eyes of all, Silas Deemer was put into the ground. Some of the eyes were a trifle dim, 
but in a general way it may be said that at that interment, where there was lack of neither observance nor observation, silence was indubitably dead, and none could have pointed out any ritual delinquency that would have justified him in coming back from the grave. Yet if human testimony is good for anything, and certainly it once put an end to witchcraft in and about Salem, he came back. I forgot to state that the death and burial of Silas Deemer occurred in the little village of Hillbrook, where he had lived for 31 years. He had been what is known in some parts of the Union, which is admittedly a free country, as a merchant. That is to say, he kept a retail shop for the sale of such things as are commonly sold in shops of that character. His honesty had never been questioned so far as is known, and he was held in high esteem by all. The only thing that could be urged against him by the most censorious was a too close attention to business. It was not urged against him, though many another who manifested it in no greater degree was less leniently judged. The business to which Silas was devoted was mostly his own. That possibly may have made a difference. At the time of Deemer's death, nobody could recollect a single day, Sundays excepted, that he had not passed in his store since he'd opened it more than a quarter century before. His health having been perfect during all that time, he'd been unable to discern any validity in whatever may or might have been urged to lure him astray from his counter. And it is related that once when he was summoned to the county seat as a witness in an important law case and did not attend, the lawyer who had the hardihood to move that he be admonished was solemnly informed that the court regarded the proposal with surprise. Judicial surprise being an emotion that attorneys are not commonly ambitious to arouse, the motion was hastily withdrawn, and an agreement with the other side effected as to what Mr. Deemer would have said if he had been there, the other side pushing its advantage to the extreme and making the suppositious testimony distinctly damaging to the interests of its proponents. In brief, it was the general feeling in all that region that Silas Deemer was the one immobile verity of Hillbrook, and that his translation in space would precipitate some dismal public ill or strenuous calamity. Mrs. Deemer and two grown daughters occupied the upper rooms of the building, but Silas had never been known to sleep elsewhere than on a cot behind the counter of the store. And there, quite by accident, he was found one night dying and passed away just before the time for taking down the shutters. Though speechless, he appeared conscious, and it was thought by those who knew him best that if the end had unfortunately been delayed beyond the usual hour for opening the store, the effect upon him would have been deplorable. Such had been Silas Deemer, such the fixity and invariety of his life and habit that the village humorist, who had once attended college, was moved to bestow upon him the sobriquet of Old Ibidem, and in the first issue of the local newspaper after the death, to explain without offense that Silas had taken a day off. It was more than a day, but from the record it appears that well within a month, Mr. Deemer made it plain that he had not the leisure to be dead. One of Hillbrook's most respected citizens was Alvin Creed, a banker. He lived in the finest house in town, kept a carriage, and was a most estimable man variously. He knew something of the advantages of travel, too, having been frequently in Boston, and once, it was thought, in New York, though he modestly disclaimed that glittering distinction. 
The matter is mentioned here merely as a contribution to an understanding of Mr. Creed's worth. For either way, it's creditable to him, to his intelligence, if he had put himself even temporarily into contact with metropolitan culture, to his candor if he had not. One pleasant summer evening at about the hour of ten, Mr. Creed, entering at his garden gate, passed up the gravel walk, which looked very white in the moonlight, mounted the stone steps of his fine house, and pausing a moment, inserted his latch key in the door. As he pushed this open, he met his wife, who was crossing the passage from the parlor to the library. She greeted him pleasantly, and pulling the door farther back, held it for him to enter. Instead, he turned, and looking about his feet in front of the threshold, uttered an exclamation of surprise. Why, what the devil, he said, has become of that jug? What jug, Alvin? his wife inquired, not very sympathetically. A jug of maple syrup. I brought it along from the store and set it down here to open the door. What the? There, there, Alvin, please don't swear again, said the lady, interrupting. Hillbrook, by the way, is not the only place in Christendom where a vestigial polytheism forbids the taking in vain of the evil one's name. The jug of maple syrup, which the easy ways of village life had permitted Hillbrook's foremost citizen to carry home from the store, was not there. Are you quite sure, Alvin? My dear, do you suppose a man does not know when he's carrying a jug? I bought that syrup at Deemer's as I was passing. Deemer himself drew it and lent me the jug, and I... The sentence remains to this day unfinished. Mr. Creed staggered into the house, entered the parlor, and dropped into an armchair, trembling in every limb. He had suddenly remembered that Silas Deemer was three weeks dead. Mrs. Creed stood by her husband, regarding him with surprise and anxiety. For heaven's sake, she said, what ails you? Mr. Creed's ailment having no obvious relation to the interests of the better land, he did not apparently deem it necessary to expound it on that demand. He said nothing, merely stared. There were long moments of silence, broken by nothing but the measured ticking of the clock, which seemed somewhat slower than usual, as if it were civilly granting them an extension of time in which to recover their wits. Jane, I have gone mad, that is it. He spoke thickly and hurriedly. You should have told me. You must have observed my symptoms before they became so pronounced that I have observed them myself. I thought I was passing Deemer's store. It was open and lit up. That is what I thought. Of course, it is never open now. Silas Deemer stood at his desk behind the counter. My God, Jane, I saw him as distinctly as I see you. Remembering that you had said you wanted some maple syrup, I went in and bought some. That is all. I bought two quarts of maple syrup from Silas Deemer, who is dead and underground, but nevertheless drew that syrup from a cask and handed it to me in a jug. He talked with me, too, rather gravely, I remember, even more so than was his way, but not a word of what he said can I now recall. But I saw him. Good Lord, I saw and talked with him, and he is dead. So I thought, but I'm mad, Jane. I'm as crazy as a beetle, and you've kept it from me. This monologue gave the woman time to collect what faculties she had. Alvin, she said, you've given no evidence of insanity, believe me. 
This was undoubtedly an illusion. How could it be anything else? That would be too terrible, but there's no insanity. You're working too hard at the bank. You should not have attended the meeting of directors this evening. Anyone could see that you were ill. I knew something would occur. It may have seemed to him that the prophecy had lagged a bit, awaiting the event, but he said nothing of that, being concerned with his own condition. He was calm now and could think coherently. Doubtless the phenomenon was subjective, he said, with a somewhat ludicrous transition to the slang of science. Granting the possibility of spiritual apparition and even materialization, yet the apparition and materialization of a half-gallon brown clay jug, a piece of coarse, heavy pottery evolved from nothing, that is hardly thinkable. As he finished speaking, a child ran into the room, his little daughter. She was clad in a bedgown. Hastening to her father, she threw her arms around his neck, saying, You naughty papa, you forgot to come in and kiss me. We heard you open the gate and got up and looked out. And Papa dear, Eddie says mayn't he have a little jug when it is empty? As the full import of that revelation imparted itself to Alvin Creed's understanding, he visibly shuddered, for the child could not have heard a word of the conversation. The estate of Silas Deemer being in the hands of an administrator who had thought it best to dispose of the business, the store had been closed ever since the owner's death the goods having been removed by another merchant who had purchased them on block. The rooms above were vacant as well, for the widow and daughters had gone to another town. On the evening immediately after Alvin Creed's adventure, which had somehow got out, a crowd of men, women, and children thronged the sidewalk opposite the store. That the place was haunted by the spirit of the late Silas Deemer was now well known to every resident of Hillbrook, though many affected disbelief. Of these, the hardiest, and in a general way the youngest, threw stones against the front of the building, the only part accessible, but carefully missed the unshuttered windows. Incredulity had not grown to malice. A few venturesome souls crossed the street and rattled the door in its frame, struck matches and held them near the window, attempted to view the black interior. Some of the spectators invited attention to their wit by shouting and groaning and challenging the ghost to a foot race. After a considerable time had elapsed without any manifestation, and many of the crowd had gone away, all those remaining began to observe that the interior of the store was suffused with a dim yellow light. At this, all demonstrations ceased. The intrepid souls about the door and windows fell back to the opposite side of the street and were merged in the crowd. The small boys ceased throwing stones. Nobody spoke above his breath. All whispered excitedly and pointed to the now steadily growing light. How long a time had passed since the first faint glow had been observed, none could have guessed, but eventually the illumination was bright enough to reveal the whole interior of the store, and there, standing at his desk behind the counter, Silas Deemer was distinctly visible. The effect upon the crowd was marvelous. It began rapidly to melt away at both flanks as the timid left the place. Many ran as fast as their legs would let them. Others moved off with greater dignity, turning occasionally to look backward over the shoulder. At last, a score or more, mostly men, remained where they were, speechless, staring, excited. The apparition inside gave them no attention. It was apparently occupied with a book of accounts. 
Presently, three men left the crowd on the sidewalk as if by a common impulse and crossed the street. One of them, a heavy man, was about to set his shoulder against the door when it opened, apparently without human agency, and the courageous investigators passed in. No sooner had they crossed the threshold than they were seen by the awed observers outside to be acting in the most unaccountable way. They thrust out their hands before them, pursued devious courses, came into violent collision with the counter, with boxes and barrels on the floor, and with one another. They turned awkwardly hither and thither and seemed trying to escape, but unable to retrace their steps. Their voices were heard in exclamations and curses. But in no way did the apparition of Silas Deemer manifest an interest in what was going on. By what impulse the crowd was moved, none ever recollected. But the entire mass, men, women, children, dogs, made a simultaneous and tumultuous rush for the entrance. They congested the doorway, pushing for precedence, resolving themselves at length into a line and moving up step by step. By some subtle spiritual or physical alchemy, observation had been transmuted into action. The sightseers had become participants in the spectacle. The audience had usurped the stage. To the only spectator remaining on the other side of the street, Alvin Creed, the banker, the interior of the store with its inpouring crowd continued in full illumination. All the strange things going on there were clearly visible. To those inside, all was black darkness. It was as if each person, as he was thrust in at the door, had been stricken blind and was maddened by the mischance. They groped with aimless imprecision, tried to force their way out against the current, pushed and elbowed, struck at random, fell and were trampled, rose and trampled in their turn. They seized one another by the garments, the hair, the beard, fought like animals, cursed, shouted, called one another opprobrious and obscene names. When finally Alvin Creed had seen the last person of the line pass into that awful tumult, the light that had illuminated it was suddenly quenched, and all was as black to him as to those within. He turned away and left the place. In the early morning, a curious crowd had gathered about Deemer's. It was composed partly of those who had run away the night before, but now had the courage of sunshine, partly of honest folk going to their daily toil. The door of the store stood open. The place was vacant, but on the walls, the floor, the furniture, were shreds of clothing and tangles of hair. Hillbrook Militant had managed somehow to pull itself out and had gone home to medicine its hurts and swear that it had been all night in bed. On the dusty desk behind the counter was the sales book. The entries in it in Deemer's handwriting had ceased on the 16th day of July, the last of his life. There was no record of a later sale to Alvin Creed. That is the entire story, except that men's passions having subsided and reason having resumed its immemorial sway, it was confessed in Hillbrook that, considering the harmless and honorable character of his first commercial transaction under the new conditions, Silas Deemer, deceased, might properly have been suffered to resume business at the old stand without mobbing. In that judgment, the local historian from whose unpublished work these facts are compiled had the thoughtfulness to signify his concurrence. End of A Jug of Syrup Hey everyone, thanks for listening. 
Help support the show and keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me pgttcm and donate a buck or five or whatever you feel. Or go to pgttcm.podbean.com and hit that patron button. That will set you up with donating on the regular if you want to keep this show going, if you want to hear two episodes of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos a month, or if you want to hear better stories, higher quality stuff on the, I don't know, monthly readings. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Okay, so you know you can uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And we just want to say, check out Podbean. It's straight from the source, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. So next month is going to be August Derleth. Send us any mythos stories that you've written yourself, and we're going to be talking about August Derleth and Arkham House Publishing. Month after that, we're going to have Bronte. So you know Andrew Grace is going to be here for that. He's going to be here, like, probably a lot. October, we're going to have spooky stories, and that's just going to be all kinds of different ghost stories and spooky stories. And then in November, we're going to be going with like old, old English stories. So expect some Beowulf. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening so much, and I hope your podcast that's coming up next is good. And not like a whole bunch of the ends of podcasts that you're like, oh, I don't want to listen to the person at the end talk about stuff, and then you skip. And, and then, like, at the end of the week, you have, like, all these ends of all these little podcasts and stuff. I always hear myself in those because I'm like, I don't want to listen to myself try and tell myself to help the show get better. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. If you got all the way to this part, high fives. Send me, send, send me a link. I mean, not send me a link. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter or something and said, hey, I got all the way to the end episodes. Hashtag high five. Anyway. You're the best. Keep on going.